Hello, everybody. I'm Michael Rock. And I'm Brendan Collins, and welcome, Ball Stars, one and all, to another episode of the Balls Over the Top podcast. We had a really exciting week of sports this week, all over the map, from this side of the pond and over in Europe, so we got to jump right into things with world football. Oh, yeah. It's been a great week of soccer games and why don't we kick things off with the Premier League? Yeah, a lot of great matches matches this past week. A lot of really good just matchups. I mean, teams that we've wanted to see play each other. Uh, the entire schedule was just riddled with good matchups. And I got to say, one that really, I think, caught everybody's eyes was that Liverpool versus Manchester City game. Yeah, Man City outclassed Liverpool, putting four goals past Allison and what Liverpool has for defense at the moment. Yeah, which, you know, a well-placed chair might be a better defensive option than some of the guys they've been forced to throw out there with the injuries. I know they tried to address it over the transfer window, but really, they did not do enough. Yeah, I mean, it would almost be impossible to do enough. I mean, losing down three center backs with injury issues. Yeah, but trying to defend a title that you haven't held in, what, 30 years, you would have expected them to maybe be a little bit more aggressive in that off-season window or, sorry, not the off-season window, the, the January window, window. Yeah, yeah, the mid-season window. You would expect them to be a little bit more aggressive and be trying to address those needs because these are also pretty significant injuries. I mean, the injuries that we saw to a lot of their players, especially that Virgil van Dyke injury that yeah. comes to mind. Joe Gomez's injury is also pretty severe. Yeah, they're not necessarily easy or quick fixes, and there's not a full guarantee that these players are going to come back to form at the level that they were at. And so I would have expected the club and Jurgen Klopp to be taking that a little bit more seriously and have found solutions that seemed a little bit less thrown together. Mm -hmm. Not so much on the cheap, on the fly. But I think with the form that Manchester City is in, I mean, they've won over a dozen straight in all competitions, or rather unbeaten in over that amount of time. They're playing like a well-oiled machine, and... When you have those gaps, when you have those issues and inconsistencies like Liverpool does right now, Manchester City is just going to jump on them and attack them and exploit them. Yeah, well, and they've got their spot at the top of the table, and it's going to be very hard to unseat them, especially considering their recent form and the fact that they're getting goals from everybody everywhere. But they were not the only good game this past weekend. We saw another thriller as Everton and the Toffees were taking on Manchester United. That game ended in a 3-3 draw, and really, that was excitement from start to finish. Yes, We could have seen it go either direction, and it felt like it almost seemed like 3-3, we were still going to see more goals. Yeah, well, especially when you were talking about the defensive lineup. I mean, David De Gea did not look good for Manchester United. No, you you really wonder when they're going to seriously consider going toward Dean Henderson cuz 
he's been lights out for the last couple of years, and De Gea, that starting position has been getting less and less steady. Yeah, it's less and less secure for sure, and letting, I would say, two pretty bad goals up against Everton. Yeah, definitely two of the three were ones he would have wanted back. The last one kind of wasn't as much his fault, especially with that relentless, you know, there's a pretty relentless attack over there on Everton. Calvert-Lewin has been playing like a man possessed really ever since Ancelotti took that job. Yes, and it's been a much improved Everton side. Another improved Everton side, and maybe the manager has something to do with it. I said another improved Everton side. I meant another improved English side. Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel has come into a pretty decent run of form. Well, and I am very excited about that, obviously. I don't have to go into detail to everybody here about my Chelsea fanhood, but this is a team that we knew had the talent. They were talented last year. They were a Champions League, you know, qualifier last year. And they started out this season after adding hundreds of millions of dollars worth of talent really on a tear. A lot of whispers going around early on, pegging them as early favorites to possibly take the league. And then the wheels came off the wagon. So these types of performances are not something that is unheard of for this team. You would argue this is where they should have been performing all along. But it is good to see Tuchel getting these guys playing. It seems like that creativity is back, that smothering defense is back. I mean, they ended up with nearly 70% possession. And this was against a pretty solid side. I mean... Yeah, Sheffield's no joke. Especially defensively. I know that... They've, they're at the lower side of the table, and they have had difficulty replicating the success that they had last year. Yeah, but it's because they're not scoring goals. They're not scoring goals, and exactly. They, they, they normally, though, can still shut you down defensively, and this team was still able to find some success, find some openings. And I think it's the turning of a new page for Tuchel and this Chelsea side. It's a little bit surprising to me, though, where he's getting some of his support from, and I think one of the most impressive players on this Chelsea side has been Mason Mount, and he's come into a great run of form under Thomas Tuchel and his high-pressing system. Well, Mason Mount is just one of many young, bright spots coming up in the English footballing system. It seems as though there is a entire great young crop of English stars just waiting to take that next step, and Mason Mount is one of them. You think Jack Grealish, you think Mason Greenwood, you think... Phil Foden. Phil Foden, exactly. There's a lot, Marcus Rashford, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of great, young, talented English players. And really, Mason Mount is demanding himself be taken as seriously as anybody in that group that's for sure we take a look at this spurs this tottenham hotspurs side and once again they're getting goal production out of harry kang and Huangman's son 
but they still haven't been able to find their third piece. Steven Bergwijn hasn't been cemented into their system. Bale, his availability is always in question. Do you think the Spurs will be looking this summer to possibly add that final third attacking piece to have a trio up top to rival the likes of Man City to Liverpool and their attacking fronts? If, I, if you're asking me if that's what I think they should do, then yes, absolutely. But if you're asking me if that's what I think they will do, no, I don't. It seems like Tottenham over the years never, and I mean never, is willing to crack their clenched fingers off of their wallet to spend some money. This is a team that has had talent. I mean, it's not like this is Harry Kane's first year on the scene. It's not like this is Son's first year on the scene. They had guys like Christian Eriksen. They had baby, young, impressive Gareth Bale. Even Luka Modric was a Chel- uh, was a Tottenham Hotspur before his, you know, adventure in Spain. Tottenham doesn't spend money to bring players in. Tottenham makes money by selling players. You know, they it's just not in their nature. This is a team, too, that really needs it. I mean, you're talking about them struggling to score. They're hardly scoring at all. If Harry Kane isn't in the lineup or Hoangman Son isn't making a phenomenal play, this team is held off the score sheet. I mean... Yes, they got to win this past week. They managed to pull off, what was it, a 2-0 victory mm-hmm. against, uh, was it West Brom? They, they got the victory against West Brom this week, which it's not, you know, the two games before that, they were held scoreless in both of them, taking losses to Br- uh, Chelsea, which, okay, Chelsea's a big six team. I don't think there's any shame in taking a loss to Chelsea 1-0. But they also took the loss to Brighton, who were relegation zone at the time of the game. So this is a side that is struggling to score against clubs at the top of the table and at the bottom of the table. I don't know if one player changes that. Yeah, I mean, it is a tall ask to find somebody to then also be able to thrust the offense for. But if they look to be... Getting at the top of this table, which seems to be constantly moving, constantly shifting, they're going to need some offense to come from somewhere. But the league that has no trouble with offense, especially this season, is no doubt the Serie A as we come into match day 21. And we see the old guard continue to bang them in. Yeah, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, just the ageless wonder out there in Milan. Seems to not care what anybody thinks. No. He's just going to keep on scoring goals. Manages a brace this past weekend in their 4-0 victory. He's just unbelievable. It shows that age is just a number. Constantly defying all of the odds and putting on a show, which is what everybody wants to see when they know Zlatan is playing in a game. Yeah. And no, and no doubt it shows up on the, chat, the stat sheet for this one. 500 and 501 club goals for the player. He's been a little bit everywhere. He's played in most of the major leagues. And 500 goals, just an impressive feat for a prolific goal scorer. Yeah, I mean, really one of the most prolific attacking forces that we will ever see. We are spoiled to be getting to live during the incredible career 
of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, and the fact that he continues to do it at this age is a marvel. It really is. You know, everybody wants to pat Tom Brady on the back, just like we're going to be forced to do later on in this show. But when you're able to find success, when you're able to still dominate the competition, and you're, you've been doing it since some of your teammates were even born, you got to take your hat off to that. you got to give credit where credit's due. And, again, we are privileged and treated to getting to watch Latan as he continues to dazzle. AC Milan stays at the top of the table, and right behind them is Inter. Inter coming off a win in this match day. And Ivan Perisic finally gets his second goal of the season. Yeah, a really big scoring slump for a player who normally is able to find production no matter where he's been and where you play him on the field. But this is a crowded Inter Milan side with a lot of talented players, both young and old. And if you're not producing, you're not going to get the playtime. It seems like Perisic just has not been getting the regular playtime that he would need for the production. And maybe playing a little bit out wide, not necessarily having his you know, fingerprints on the game the way that he would like to. It'll be something to keep an eye on if this creates tension and maybe causes a great player like Perisic to want to leave. Or if this is something that gets rectified, he just comes back and they're able to continue to utilize him for his strengths. But I'll tell you who just scores, I swear you could probably put him at goalie and they'd still be putting away goals, is Cristiano Ronaldo, who continued, again, we're talking about leg- legendary careers, continued his legendary career, scoring against Roma this past week, and leading the Serie A with 16 goals. Yeah, I mean, Ronaldo's kind of the, the physical specimen of the football players, right? I mean, he's he's the athlete that leads all soccer players. And again, an impressive performance, putting away another goal. Yes, I mean, I, he gets penalty kicks, of course. He gets free kicks, of course. But the fact that he's got 16 this season... Incredibly impressive. Yeah, and he earns them. Each and every one. Not to throw him under the bus and kick him while he's down, but how many in a row now have I seen Timo Werner not convert? How many even did I see Jorginho went on a streak where he missed several? Converting kicks from the spot is no given event. It's not not. They can be stopped. And Ronaldo's among the all-time best at it. But let's skip on over, away from Italy, and over to your favorite league, the Bundesliga. Oh, man, and it was a great Bundesliga weekend, week, match day, at match day 20. And it's been impressive runs of form for a couple of clubs at the top of the table. Wolfsburg has won four straight. Frankfurt has won three straight. Weghorst for Wolfsburg getting one goal and one assist this weekend. Kostic for Frankfurt getting a goal and two assists this weekend in the revitalized attacking sides of both those teams but undoubtedly we see Bayern five straight wins they lead the table by seven points and it's looking like it's going to get tougher and tougher to catch them yeah I mean it's just a repeat it always seems like history repeats itself here it feels like Bayern is almost a shoe in to win the league every year almost more so than any other league I mean maybe 
PSG in France is more of a given. But this league still remains incredibly entertaining. It remains incredibly competitive. And it'll provide a lot of great fun to watch, even if Bayern, in fact, does lock up their you know, 11 millionth title in as many attempts. We're going to have some fun things to watch. We're going to have a lot of the world's most talented players playing. But the thing that I was more excited about this week and the thing that has had my attention for most of this Bundesliga season has been the overall increase in play in the top six teams. I mean... It feels, at least to me, like this is the most competitive the top half of the table has been in the four or five years that I've been really watching the Bundesliga. And I'm excited to see teams like Frankfurt, like Leverkusen, like Borussia Mönchengladbach. Union Berlin. Union Berlin, exactly. Hoffenheim even. Even though they're mid-table, they've been putting together impressive results. Wolfsburg is another one. And, you know, didn't even have to mention Leipzig and Dortmund and the teams that we've, you know, come to expect to be competitive. But these uh, these teams that really were that mid-level ta- table teams really stepped it up. And I think that's across all leagues. You know, this year we're seeing that in the Premier League really strongly with teams like Southampton and West Ham and... The Foxes, you know, Leicester, and all these different teams. Brighton, even. Brighton, exactly, that were kind of mid-table teams that are now overperforming. And, you know, I don't know if that's a sign of the lack of crowd. I, I don't know what if there's anything that we can point to to explain it. But it's definitely made these leagues a lot more fun to watch. Yeah. One thing about the Bundesliga that I did think was interesting is we did have our first postponement of the year. Yeah. Bellafield and Werder Bremen had their match postponed because of COVID. And this is Germany, who has been a beacon of efficiency and really dominance over this virus, starting to crack, starting to show some cracks in the foundation having to postpone a game. Hopefully it is the only one that they deal with. But with the way outbreaks have been heading and numbers, we could see a couple more PPDs on the upcoming schedule. Yeah, not to mention the U-COVID strain coming into play and being a little bit higher of an infection rate. It it did spread. Werder Bremen and Armenia's game were canceled. Hopefully we get to see them soon because we do have a soft spot here as Josh Sargent is the American striker for Werder Bremen and he's been pretty good this season. What hasn't been pretty good as of late has been this Dortmund side. Borussia Dortmund has one win in their last five games and it's not like they were drawn those games. They lost 2-1 to one to Freiburg even though Makoko scored a lone goal for Dortmund. Dortmund's hitting a really rough skid. They fired their manager this season. They've got talent coming out the wazoo, except for the fact that Julian Brandt is still starting on this team. Don't know how that's happening. I gotta say, are you surprised by Dortmund's floundering at this point in the season? I mean, there's no bones about it. Yes, yes, I am surprised. This is a team that seemed like it was bleeding goals to start the season. seemed like no matter where you turn, no matter what was going on, a ball was getting up in the back of the net. Erling Holland. It's one of the most incredible scorers 
we've ever seen. And yet this is a team that seems like it forgot how to play the game. You, it, whether it's the young guys like Holland or, or any of that young attack. I mean, there's, I, if I wanted, I could list half of the roster after saying the young guys. Mm-hmm. Or if it's the old reliables like Marco Royce, there's been no consistency. No. They're just playing poorly right now. Yeah. Obviously, I think they can turn it around. I think that this is a team that is oozing with class. But they've got to figure it out, and I don't know what you do from here. I mean, they've already tried firing the manager. They got a little bit of a burst out of that. It seemed like they kind of stopped the bleeding from that initial downfall, stabilized for a couple of games, and now they're right back into that skid. And I don't know what you do now. No. You kind of already played the one card you can yeah. as And you're six in the table. Exactly. This is a team that really has no business being outside of the top four at any point during the season. And I really wonder how they're going to focus moving forward. I mean, we have the Champions League starting up again within the next week. With their domestic campaign so far off the rails, are they going to focus their energy on the Champions League? Or is it kind of the opposite? Do you say, hey, we just need to make sure we're going to finish top four. Forget about the Champions League trophy this year. Let's make sure we're playing in it next year. You know, there's different directions they could take this. Yeah, and... uh... Either one. Either one could be quite interesting. We did have also a record yes. in the Bundesliga. Another one smashed. Florian Wirtz from Bayer Leverkusen scores his fifth goal in the league and moves to sixth youngest in the top five leagues at 18 years, four months, and 22 days old to record five goals in the league. He's joining the likes of you know Wayne Rooney, Kylian Mbappe, players of the sort to come out and strike young. There's also been a couple busts in there. And by Niang also put up, I think he's the record holder for the youngest to score his first five league goals. And then I don't even know where he is now. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like a name that I only remember because of FIFA. I had a really good silver card of him. Probably was that year that he broke that record. I mean, definitely these guys, if you see that flash when they're young, sometimes they take off and they're Erling Holland or you know maybe he's even too young to say as a success yet but you know sometimes they take on and that's their whole career or sometimes that was just a little flash in the pan and they're doomed to be eternally mediocre oh yeah it's interesting when you when you take a look back I mean, you know, at the... what Freddie Adu was playing with the pros at age 15 16 and then by the time he was 26 27 he, he was, was out, out of, of the league and washed up out of most leagues yeah impressive to see but we can go to spain for a little taste of what la liga holds for us and atletico maintains eight points clear in that leading spot and they salvage a draw 2-2 against celta vigo yeah really a pretty shocking surrendering of points here by atletico madrid they end up needing to claw back to get that point from this matchup against Celta Vigo, and I'm very surprised by this. I say it's shocking because, you know, Atletico had this weird opportunity where they got to burst to the top of the table this season while Real and Barcelona were floundering. Neither one of those teams could get their footing. Remember, we were talking week in and week out about what's going on in La Liga, especially Barcelona sitting in 13th place, 11th place, 14th place, parts of the table that they haven't been in in decades and decades and decades. And yet, 
Atletico had their spot at the top of the table, and they were like a train just picking up speed. Well, now, dropping these points, you're opening up that door. You're giving teams like Barcelona that opportunity to potentially get back in this fight for the league title. And we see that right here. Barcelona manages to sneak away with a 3-2 win against Betis. They get the job done. Lionel Messi scores one of the most beautiful goals I've seen in ages to tie it up. And then they go ahead and they take the lead late in that game. They get all three points. Why? They have that championship pedigree. They have that experience. They know what they need to do. The title chase is already on for Barcelona. They've already slipped up as much as they can. Atletico needs to keep every point they can get their hands on and dropping them in a game against a Celta Vigo team that they should beat is a prime example of how they could lose themselves a title that looked like it was pretty much signed, sealed, delivered in their bag. It's true. And Rafael Varane gets a brace in the second-half comeback this week. Real Madrid hasn't found much good goal scoring from the top, but the back line gets it done for them. Yeah, and it's big for them. This is a team that has been struggling. To get that production, no matter where it's coming from, can't be understated or, or overstated even. I mean, it's it's incredible. The fact that they only scored two goals in that game and yet they're still able to come away with a win shows you, I mean, the defense was valuable on both sides of the field. You had your center back creating goals, and obviously Varane was integral in keeping it so they only conceded one, keeping the score where it was. They need to figure out what they're doing to the front half of the field. Yeah, especially after, you know, spending the money on players like Hazard, the, the wages that they're paying Benzema. You'd think that they would be looking quite heavily this offseason to be making a transfer in that, that attacking third. Well, not to mention their midfielders are, are not getting any younger. I mean, right now, Luka Modric and Tony Cruz were two of their three midfielders in that game. I mean, those are both guys who were not getting any younger. No, they're in the 30s. And digits. I don't know if there's any good, exciting, talented midfielders in the pipeline. I mean, Odegaard was there, but he's on loan to Arsenal. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see. One more interesting just world football note that we have. Champions League is moving games because of restrictions and such. Borussia Mönchengladbach will be facing City in Man City in Budapest. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame, but England right now has been a hotbed. Germany has strict restrictions. I'm glad that they were able to find this compromise to allow this game to be played on time. And without fans in the stands, I guess you could argue the home field, home field advantage yeah. is pretty moot anyway. It's kind of a wash. But let's move things stateside. We have some exciting developments, finally, to talk about with regards to this upcoming MLS season. Yes, the MLS was started for an April 3rd start, and it looks like the players and the league have agreed to a new CBA, and the le- it's going to happen. No lockout. Yeah, this is huge because we talked about it before the first time this came up, but this is a league that really grew and gained a lot of momentum this past year. They grew, it seemed like, in talent. 
They grew literally by having the expansions teams fulfill their destiny, you know, and start playing and, you know, opening up business. But it's also one that I think in the eyes of the general public gained a lot of respect. It kind of established itself with the big boys when they became the first league to come back successfully. They had the eyes of the world, or the U.S. at least. Mm-hmm. Particularly saying, sports market. Yeah. Exactly. I'm saying, hey, how are we getting sports back? How is this going to work? Let's look at how they're going to do this. Yeah. And the MLS paved the way for then the NBA bubble, for hockey coming back and resuming in their bubble, and then even the entire NFL season starting, not to mention all the European soccer leagues starting back up. So the MLS, in its quality, on the pitch, and even off the pitch, as far as organizationally, took a big, big, big step forward in 2020. And had they had a lockout, had they have not started play when they were supposed to, they would have lost a lot of that progress that they had made. Yeah. And they didn't make, they didn't take really any losses in this new CBA agreement. It seems like the players are the ones who had to make sacrifices. There's a salary cap freeze until 2022. They have a decreased TV revenue share. It was supposed to be 25%, but now it is decreased to 12.5% until 2025, in which it will go back up to 25%. And the really the lone win for the MLS players in this CBA agreement doesn't come into effect until 2026, but it's dropping the years required for players to become free agents in the market. Yeah, which that is a weird thing in general. I wonder how players feel about this. The collective bargaining and the union power of the athletes in the United States is different than it is in other countries. And so having salary caps is something totally foreign to players that aren't from here. Having free agency... Obviously, yes, players transfer over there, but it's, okay, you're either under contract or you're not under contract. There's no, well, if you're under a certain age, the contract that you have still has team control and arbitration. Like, they don't have those weird player rights, or, you know, or rights to a player, not player rights, but, you know, the, mm-hmm. the team's rights to a player is a totally different thing conceptually outside of the U.S. than it is in the U.S. And so... I find it very fascinating, most notably that with the MLS, when there are sweeping rules and regulations that impact all of the players involved, because I'm curious as to how that may play into players wanting to come here. Yeah, it will be interesting to see. But it is huge for the sport. They still get their start time. It guarantees that we are getting, getting the great sport that we love, and it provides stable financial framework for these teams a lot of them infant teams still trying to find their way and establish their foothold in their respective markets i'm never one to side with the owners or the teams but if it helps these franchises really establish their roots then i am i guess for the temporary allocation of funds back toward the teams away from the players Yes. 
But we do have some exciting on-the-pitch news, or I guess, you know, personnel news, before we jump out of the MLS here, and that is that Alexandra Pato, a big household name for anybody who really knows soccer, who followed soccer, who played FIFA in the early 2000s, Alexandra Pato, the pacey Brazilian striker who had a little bit of a short run with Chelsea, has been really all over the map. Looks like he has an offer to play in Orlando City alongside Nani for the up-and-coming club. Tell you, just could be more established talent coming to this league. Mm-hmm. He's had a bit of a rough stretch. He went to go play in China, didn't play out that well, went back home to Brazil, again didn't play out that well. But it'll be interesting to see how this Orlando City side can implement him and bring him in, you know, following in the footsteps of another Brazilian star in Kaká, who had a great run of success with Orlando City. It will be interesting to see if he takes that deal and winds up on that pitch. But another Brazilian is coming to the MLS, and FC Cincinnati inks him to the third most expensive signing in MLS history. $15 million paid for the player. $13 million coming from the transfer fee. $2 million in bonuses, and his club is getting a 20% sell-on clause. Yeah, I mean, this is huge for them. Obviously, if he continues to progress the way he has, that 20% sell-on could even equate to, or could lead to basically doubling the fee that they're already getting for him. But regardless, good to see talent coming to the MLS. Good to see the overall quality of player improving. And, you know, they got the, the dollars to be thrown at those kind of players. It means that financially it looks they, they'll be able to figure things out. It looks like something's working, but... Let's take it off the grass and on to the hardwood. We've got NBA news to talk about, and it's been a great week of NBA basketball. Yeah, we've had a lot of exciting things happening. Most notably, it seems like less games have been postponed this week. They had an all-time high last week and the week before. It was just trending the wrong direction. They get that trending back in the right direction here. It's always exciting when they're actually playing the games as opposed to needing to cancel them. But on the court, it has been exciting. And in the Eastern Conference, things have been heating up with the Nets getting their footing. The big new big three there with Durant, Harden, and Kyrie Irving starting to build their chemistry. They've been huge. But I tell you, it's going to be tough to dethrone the previous kings of the East. The Milwaukee Bucks have been the best team in the conference for the last two seasons. And they're not going to be giving up that spot lightly. They were on an absolute roll this past week. They went 4-0, and Giannis has been a monster. The Greek freak is averaging 24 points, over 10 rebounds, over 6 assists, and he's just been facilitating that Bucks offense and still being an absolute lockdown defender. Yeah, really a big deal because he's coming off of two consecutive NBA MVP awards, and that's huge. It's one of the most sought-after regular season awards in all of sports. He's coming off of two in a row, and I gotta say that second one, a lot of people have their reservations or question marks about because LeBron James had an un 
unbelievable season last year and capped it off with a championship instead of a early playoff exit. Now, I know the MVP is a regular season award. And it's an individual award. But even if you just look at the individual contributions to their teams last year, it was kind of hard to argue with LeBron James. So, with that being said, it is key that Giannis get back to his form of last year. He was off to a slow start this year. LeBron, once again, has been the leading favorite to capture the MVP award. And it seems as though LeBron balling out this year, trending toward an award, that award, and Giannis struggling this year, not really finding that form, was kind of providing more legitimacy to that argument that last year's award was a fluke. And so it's good to see Giannis back on the horse, so to speak, playing like the MVP that everyone knows he is, and really taking those games by the horns and willing his team to victory. I mean, as Giannis goes, the Bucks go. Yes. I'll tell you another team, though, that is right now riding high, especially after the last week, is the Sacramento Kings. Wow. Talk about phrases I never thought I would be saying in my life. And yes, I, that's even including knowing now that I've had a podcast. I still don't know if I ever thought I'd say the Sacramento Kings were playing well. No. Kings have been 4-0 this past week as well, and they have been led by bona fide superstar De'Aaron Fox. The previous top pick for the franchise is averaging 31 points this week. 8.8 assists, and he's shooting over 50% from the floor. 54.7 to be exact. Ooh. That, along with the outside shooting that that team is getting from Buddy Heald, as well as the inside play from Rashawn Holmes and Hassan Whiteside, this Kings team could really actually make some noise and even sneak in with a low-seed playoff position in that crowded Western Conference. And it's unbelievable to think, I mean, their years of dwelling in the basement and nothing seeming to come together for them, but De'Aaron Fox has really led this team. Yeah, and I know that they've had a lot of great success and a lot of big contributions from some of the outside players. Some Again, the shooters, De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, really kind of the two guys that come to mind. But I want to ask you about a slightly different player. I just mentioned him a second ago. Rashawn Holmes, yes. the X-76er. The processor. Has really come into his own and really, I would say, is a top 10 center in the NBA. Dominant on both sides of the floor. Efficient at scoring. And terrifying on defense when that was a process era had early picks top five overall picks of Nerlens Noel Jaleel Okafor and Joel Embiid is it the fact that other than Embiid Rashawn Holmes is the most impressive out of that group does that surprise you a little bit a little bit because you would think that Nerlens Noel, even though his offensive game is still extremely limited and was was limited from the start, it really hasn't expanded at the NBA level. You'd think that his ability to lock down and protect around the rim and stretch out a bit, he he could guard on the perimeter as well and had pretty good, at least, movement in his feet. You would think that he would have the more storied career of all the centers not named Joel Embiid that the Sixers went through, but Holmes coming and developing this whole second level and being so good on the offensive glass. Really, yeah, a thing that I didn't get to emphasize. I mean, his offensive rebounding, especially with these deadly 
long-distance shooters, has been huge for this Kings team. I mean, he has the, the second-chance opportunities, and then his ability to snag the offensive gl- rebound and kick it back out for the uh, additional three-point attempt has been monumental. Yeah, it's been I mean, it's been instrumental in their success in this past week and it will be for them to continue to improve and possibly sneak into a playoff spot. But I got to say I don't know if I want to call it a blunder by the Sixers letting him go, but I think it's pretty surprising that a guy who was always considered to be a rotational, you know, when we had him, he was a rotational guy that we wouldn't find a way to keep him if he really had this much talent. Uh, maybe it's the starting minutes and the extra rotation time that allowed him to flourish into this, but you look at it and we spent all that money going out and getting Al Horford last year to have another big man to rotate with Embiid or maybe stretch as the four position. Rashawn Holmes would have been the perfect candidate for that, and we could have had him all along for probably a fraction of the price yeah. than what Al Horford would have cost. And even when you have guys like Nerlens Noel or Jaleel Okafor, who were both lottery top three, top five picks, they're coming from overall higher levels of base offense and defense than Rashawn Holmes. And that includes Okafor's defense, which was terrible, and Noel's offense, which was terrible. Which was dunking. Yeah. You could have argued they were still both more efficient offensively and defensively than Rashawn Holmes. And yet, as the years have gone on, Holmes has continued to progress and add elements to his game where the other two just haven't been able to do that. Yeah, maybe it's the fact that he that he has traveled around. Maybe he's brought in you know ideas from his various destinations. But it is good to see him. All the best to him. Yeah, I, it's fun watching him, especially West Coast team that really has no competitive conflict with the Sixers. It's a fun team to be able to root for. They're underdogs. It's fresh blood in yeah. the NBA, which feels like we never get. Almost so never. Uh, they're a fun team, and I'm definitely going to keep my eye on them as the season progresses. Speaking of somebody who is keeping their eye on something as the season's progressed, Indiana Pacers assistant coach Bill Bio retired. Retired resigns. You know, I guess retire is considered more permanent, so you don't know. I well, actually resigns regardless. Regardless, yeah. He's he steps away, away, yeah, from the team, citing his mental health and the grind that being an NBA employee is taking on his life. Obviously, there are aspects outside of the game that have their impact on this. He lost both his father and mother in the last year, year and a half, and many friends due to the ongoing pandemic, the strains that it puts on the remaining family he has, the scheduling strains, the limits of seeing people. You know, the NBA is really strict. If they know that you were seeing people who haven't been quarantining, then you have to quarantine. You have to miss games. We, the amount of players we've seen miss games due to just simply contact tracing, I could understand maybe deciding that all of that and maybe not seeing your loved ones isn't worth it No, to somebody who's lost so much in such a short amount of time. Absolutely, and we, we wish the best for him. And he's been, a, he's been a long-time NBA coach. He's been with the Pacers since 2016, staying through different head coaches. He worked with the Milwaukee Bucks. He's been on a couple of NBA teams, and we hope that 
he is well. He gets whatever help, assistance he might need through these tough times, and that hopefully one day we get to see him back as the excellent player development coach that he is. Well, speaking of somebody who is back somewhere or coming back, Derek Rose is coming back to the New York Knicks. If you don't recall, he played on the Knicks in 2016, 2017, the first team that he went to following his departure from the Chicago Bulls. But the player that the Knicks are getting is way different than the Derrick Rose of six years ago, still trying to establish himself after those gruesome knee injuries out in Chicago. This is a older, more grizzled, knowledgeable, just, I would almost say better player than than the young Derrick Rose, but obviously that explosiveness and his ability to create speed out of nowhere and penetrate to the basket has been lost with those injuries, or at least, you know, it's obviously diminished greatly yes. due to those injuries. So he's not the young Derrick Rose. No, but the, he's become a better facilitator of an offense. Yes, his game has evolved. where And his mind and his basketball IQ have tried to make up for what has been lost in physical capabilities over the years. This is a Knicks team that has honestly overperformed everybody's expectations this year. I mean, they're sixth in the league in defense, but they're 22nd in offense. And you could point to lack of consistent play from the guard position as a perfect example as to why that's happening. I mean, Elgin Payton, who has been starting at them at point guard this whole season, has been shaky, or you could say bad, I mean, I only have been following... On, on the offensive side, he hasn't been good. Correct. Offensively, he's shooting well under 40%. He just... The, the offense doesn't necessarily click with him. He's and not a prolific passer. Exactly. He's not a Ben Simmons, LaMelo ball, world-class distributor of the ball. He, and his, he's also not his an slasher, elite scorer. His slashing game isn't good. So... The addition of Derrick Rose will provide them options. They will be able to ride him when they need to, and they need that high level of production, but also coaching. I think at this point, the amount of veteran leadership, knowledge, and just overall NBA wisdom that Derrick Rose is able to bring to the table is huge. He becomes a major mentor piece. He is a guy who had tremendous success at a young age and then had to evolve his game and adjust it and adapt it as he got older. And so I think this is a great move for the Knicks. I think this will maybe help them grow and get their young superstars more acclimated to NBA life and an NBA life that isn't just perpetual losing. No, and I think this does. I think you're right. I think this is going to help with the coaching side, especially because he's reuniting with Tom Thibodeau. I think this boosts the ability of the team to communicate from that point guard spot, and I think we'll see an improvement out of it, not just from his performance, but from his, you know, sharing and his ability to mentor other players. And returning to NBA action, Kevin Durant returns Friday after being held out for six days in a 
enforce quarantine after KD was driving with an employee as part of team traveling needs who tested positive and has held him out of recent contests, including a matchup against the Sixers. Yeah, this is a weird one. This is a weird story to follow from the very beginning. So Kevin Durant has this issue, had an exposure, potential exposure, isolates, deals with tests, tests clean. I don't know the exact dates. I don't have them in front of me, but like tests clean on like a Tuesday, a Wednesday, and a Thursday, was cleared to play for the game on the Friday, and then during that day, somebody who he came in contact with tested positive again, who wasn't in the first bubble of people he came in contact with. So basically, Kevin Durant had back-to-back overlapping potential experiences that caused his isolation and window of times to be missed to be essentially a double length, a back-to-back. And so he's been very unhappy about it, making a little bit of noise on social media, you know. Kevin Durant turning to social media to air grievances? Well, hopefully he used his main account this time. It definitely put a damper on the momentum and progress that this Nets team was making. But I will say it's good to see the league really putting their foot down and drawing a hard line with how these protocols work. And that is a big part in keeping, as we mentioned, that number of games listed as PPD lower as opposed to surging like it was just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Speaking of surging issues related to this virus, the NHL has seven more games postponed. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like we're always at this point with the overlap. Ever since teams have started to come out of their COVID hibernations, We've seen them all opening up and starting at different times. And as a result, it feels like just as one league is starting to get their footing, you look at another league and they're in complete free fall. This happened during the fall with the NFL restarting and college football just being a whirlwind. We saw before that when the NBA was finishing up and they had everything all nice and organized and we're we're watching NBA Finals and then that weekend we're reading about how the Buffalo Bills have 23 positive tests. Like It's just like one league has it and the other league doesn't. Yeah. And so right now it's the NHL's turn to be in the free fall. Seven games postponed in the past week we had more games postponed tonight and it's really integral that they get this right especially with the way that everything has been divvied up with the way that teams are playing interdivisionally and this whole new system that we have during covid it could create really big traffic jams if any one group of people is out for a very extended period of time and we're seeing that The Minnesota Wild haven't played since February 3rd. The Devils haven't played since February 1st. Buffalo hasn't played since the end of January. We're seeing big chunks of the schedule being taken out. I know you're sitting there going, oh, well, that's that's only like 9, 10 days ago. That's not that bad. When you remember that this season was condensed down to 55 games and that they were pretty much trying to get done like 55 games in like 100 days, yes, postponing these games is incredibly problematic. Of course it is. I mean, we have Vancouver, who has played 16 games, and then on the other side of it, you have New Jersey, you have Tampa Bay, 
you have Florida, and you have Las Vegas. They've only played nine. They're seven games behind. That's almost double the amount of games that they've played already. Yeah, and when you look at it, you have Vancouver approaching almost being, what, close to 40% done their season when those teams haven't even hit the 20% mark. This is a problem. This is not just something. You just turn your head and be like, oh, it'll be fine. You'll figure the it out. The league needs to figure this out. They need to start scheduling those postponed games or else we're going to have Vancouver sitting there wrapping up their season when other people are getting ready for the All-Star break. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely ridiculous. Well, speaking of absolutely ridiculous, a big fan of our, uh, not a big fan, again, I say that all the time, I wish he were a big fan of ours. Maybe one day. We're big fans of him, the show, big fans of Wayne Simmons, the ex-Philadelphia Flyer, The he can do it all, the scoring, defenses, defensive plays, big hits, put him on the power play, put him on the penalty kill, put him on the first line or put him on the fourth with the goons. He can do it all. Hell, you can put a basketball in his hands, you can put a soccer ball at his feet. Guy can do anything. Wayne Simmons is an absolute monster of an athlete and an incredible hockey player. And human being, but unfortunately he is going to be missing the next six weeks with a broken wrist. I'm just speculating here. But I saw a pretty gnarly fight with Wayne Simmons over the weekend. I wonder if he caused some damage to it with some of those haymakers. He connected with quite a few. It was all over TMZ. Well, that's... One of the best hockey fights we've seen in a long time. Yeah. I know that's not where the injury occurred, but I tell you, he smacked that helmet like nine times with some yeah. haymakers. It wouldn't have shocked me. Well, that, I mean, Wayne Simmons is punching hand I've, I have no doubt is made out of just absolute titanium because you don't want to fight Wayne Simmons that's pretty much a consensus around the the NHL I guess some of the rookies were a little bit mistaken but Wayne Simmons has five goals in 12 games with the Leafs he's been impressive so far for that Leafs division leader they got 19 points him being out six weeks with a broken wrist is tough they've been missing a couple of their veterans and Wayne Simmons brings such a physical presence. You wonder if it helps, you know, protect the players like Austin Matthews, helps keep those other teams in line from taking shots. Yeah, it's a star-powered team. That Toronto lineup is riddled with talent and superstars from top to bottom. And you want that scrappy, enforcer-esque guy, especially today's NHL. There's not really room for your traditional you know, goon enforcer, but a guy like Wayne Simmons who can get you the points, who can get in front of the net, create that traffic, put the puck in the net, but also drop the gloves and connect with some knuckles on skin when he has to. It's the best of both worlds. Absolutely. They're going to be missing him. Interesting story coming out of this Calgary side. Sam Bennett was a healthy scratch earlier in the week and put in a formal trade request but winds up suiting up and playing in the lineup against the Oilers. Do you think we see Sam Bennett move before the deadline? Do you think the Flames are going to look to ship out the talented scoring winger? I think any time that you have a player that is making it publicly known that they are unhappy with the team, 
it is in the team's best interest to move on from that player. Unless it's financially oriented and throwing money at the player will fix everything, it ends up creating chemistry problems, locker room problems, performance problems, and driving down the overall value of said player from the moment that they open their mouth the first time until they're out the door. Just when a player is unhappy and there is unrest, there's going to be, it just drives down their value. Yeah, their, their overall market value decreases. Yeah, automatically there is a fallout. I think it behooves the Flames to try and move Bennett at their earliest convenience. But when you have a talented player like that, you are constantly met with the struggle of not moving him just because you're feeling a little bit of pressure and making sure that you get a return that is in line with his quality. Yeah. And so I don't expect this to be a rushed, quick-triggered, reactionary decision. I expect this to be a thought-out, planned, processed move. And if it's by the deadline, great. If it has to wait till the offseason, we could see that too. But I think the sooner, the better for both parties. It should be. Well, we can take it off the ice and into some of our little oddball segments here. We've got plenty of weird stuff to talk about in this week's sporting news. And we can start from just the other Sunday, just yesterday. Sports gambling sites crashed during the Super Bowl. Everybody wanted to get in on the action, and not everybody could. Yeah, we saw this in full effect with a lot of the Giants, the names that have become synonymous with gambling, at least here in the United States, were not ready for the action. MGM, FanDuel, DraftKings, and Barstool all were down for kickoff. Yeah. Experiencing technical difficulties to run. Yeah, I mean, I tried to sign in to all of my accounts and could not sign in. Give credit where credit's due. William Hill and PointsBet were both unaffected by the outages, despite them also having increased traffic. Their server capacities, whatever, was ready for the challenge. All their technologies in-house is what they were crediting their success with. Yeah, so big props to them. But overall, pretty surprising that on the biggest day of the year, when they are throwing commercials at you for months on end, why don't you peel off about... 20% of your commercial budget and telling us to bet on the Super Bowl and port that towards shoring up your servers so that way when the time comes, we can actually give you the money that you're trying to get from us. You know, yeah, you have one job as a business. Whoever was responsible for this at each of those major companies should be l looking for a new job oh, yeah. because that's like, you know, it's like a wedding a wedding planner not having the cake ready on the day or you know a bakery not having the cake ready on the day of a wedding. Yeah. It's just like you had one job. Yeah. It was the cake. It was pretty impressive though. This year's Super Bowl generated three times the traffic of last year's. Do you think it was because of all the media that was surrounding this game and the level of hype that was brought on by the Patrick versus Tom matchup? No. I don't no. You think it's just the prevalence of betting and just getting larger and larger? Yeah, betting, especially when you look at the amount of states that it has been legalized in, continues to grow. The availability for each of these 
apps and sites continue to grow. The regulations keep on being lessened and lessened. And so I think it's just naturally finding that space in the market. I think that sports betting will continue to grow in popularity year in and year out until we hit a it will eventually level out, obviously. But when you went from having something being literally federally outlawed mm-hmm. to now being allowed, it's, that would be like looking at a number and being like, oh, wow, the amount of people who smoke marijuana has gone up since last year. It's like, oh, yeah, when you're legalizing it in 15 to 20 states and in a decade ago, it wasn't legalized in all those states. Yes, the numbers are going to go up. What is what a, what a shocking concept. Crazy. You know, so... I think it's just the amount, you know, what is it? Every pregame show or halftime show or whatever is sponsored brought by. Brought to you by FanDuel. Brought to you by a, f- a sports book. You're getting with the, oh, who's your player of the game and what's your pick for the game? You know, even our segments, if it were two years ago, we might not have picking against the spread and the over-under and whatever being a major aspect of the podcast, but now... Because it is, and because of the foothold that has it has established in the sports market, that becomes, I don't want to say just as much a part, but it's right up there with yeah. just the quarterback matchup. With the you know, it, it becomes one of the aspects of the game that you talk about. Yeah. So no, I I mean obviously the big game, the matchup. And all of that, the excitement around it, feeds into that number. But I think the Super Bowl could have been Phillip Rivers' Colts against Drew Brees' Saints, and we would have seen three times greater than last year as well. What isn't three times greater than previous years, but still awesome to see Australia Open coming to Tennis World. They have fans in the stands. Australia's done incredibly well for a continent to deal with this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. In a country of 25 million, they've only had 909 deaths. They've had aggressive quarantining measures. They've had a lot of support and just public health. And they've been able to work together. So Australia Open sees 17,000 fans in attendance for these tennis matches. And I got to say, I think it's good for the players. I think it's good for everybody, even those who aren't tennis fans and who don't live on the island continent of Australia. When you look at a sporting event and see fans in the stands with everything we've been going through, it just makes you feel good. It just makes you feel good. When you're looking at it, it's not grainy footage from a decade, two decades, three decades ago, or even that grainy, grainy footage from that ancient time of 2019. But it's good. It brings that energy back. It brings that vibe back when when you hit a shot and the crowd goes wild. Yeah. It's electrifying. And so everybody needs this. Everybody wants this. It's good to see that there is an end in sight, even though we might not see it for a long time. Yeah, it might take a couple of years to get, get to the States. We know what we're fighting for. Absolutely. Speaking of knowing what they're fighting for... <laughs> Yeah, two individuals that have no idea what they're fighting for. Yeah, I was going to say pride, but I don't think either one of them has any of that left. Yeah, I I mean, I don't think... I was going to say money, and the fact that neither one of them has any of that left is definitely the reason for this. Yeah, it might be part of it. I mean, well, just both of them are two human flatlines, Aaron Carter 
and Lamar Odom. It's the fight that none of us wanted, yes. but we're all going to get. We're getting it. Apparently, Nate Robinson getting knocked out has inspired this whole bout of celebrities wanting to step into the boxing ring. Or people are so bored they're just willing to get punched in the face. I don't know what it is. But, yeah, Lamar Odom and Aaron Carter have a set celebrity boxing match to take place in June. Are, are you excited for this fight? No. I'm not. No. I'm not at all. And, no. and I'll tell you why, though. I mean, for, for starters... Who gives a shit about Aaron Carter and Lamar Odom? I even was more interested in the Robinson-Paul fight because I at least have a little bit of rooting interest in seeing Paul get his face punched in. I don't care about these two. I mean, sure, if you asked me, if I saw a link that was like, hey, Aaron Carter getting punched in the face, click here, I'd probably click it, yeah. yeah. But do I sit there and go, oh, you know who I want to see get punched in the face? Like, no, I'm not. I'm not I don't have that... Hatred toward Aaron Carter. So just a weird, weird celebrity. And I don't even think these two have, like, public beef. So I, I don't get it. You no, know they I mean? probably it makes, met in rehab. It makes sense. Yeah, right. It makes sense when there's people beefing and they, like, want want to settle it. And so it's like, oh, okay, fine. Yeah, guys, settle it. Let's go. Step in the ring. Yeah. Like, it's not – It's I don't even want to give it that credit, but I'm giving it that credit. This, it doesn't even warrant that. And, you know, we're coming off of a week where we saw – Jose Canseco take, I mean, a lot of people are claiming he took a dive in one of these celebrity boxing matches. I mean, he came in and, like, got punched once and then just laid down. Like, literally, like, got punched once, went down, and then was just like, nah, not my shoulder. And then stopped. That was the fight. Yeah, and he collected, you know, a million bucks. And he was the main event. It was against a Barstool Sports intern. That Jose Canseco was supposed to fight. And yet, one punch in, and he basically just goes down. Even Dave Portnoy coming out claiming that he was just took the dive for the payday because he got a bit of the pay-per-view of revenues and whatnot. I mean, legitimate cries for actual potential fraud here. I mean, basically you get these people, it was only 20 bucks for the pay-per-view, but... You throw 20 bucks down, you expect to see something good, and this guy literally, it looked like a flop in La Liga. Like, barely gets touched, goes, oh, oh, goes down and tells the referee he can't fight anymore just so he could collect his million-dollar check and get out of there. It felt slimy. It felt wrong. And that's what I feel like these celebrity boxing matches are going to start to get the vibe of. They're going to feel more like gross cash grabs that they yeah, are like it's it's it feels like dirty like yeah. you're like oh this doesn't that like yeah even then it's not like it's a celebrity or sorry it's not like it's a charity match no. like if this was for some form well, of charity well kind of is well yeah <laughs> true but it doesn't it doesn't make you feel good no it just kind of makes you sad and thank god he's not going to be around to see it leon spinks a gold medal boxer. Really uh, mo- most well-known for his defeating of Muhammad Ali. Yeah, which... and then losing in the rematch, the cautionary tale of not taking your training seriously, and then coming back and, and having another decent couple of fights. But Leon Spinks passed away after his five-year battle with prostate cancer. Our thoughts and prayers to his family and his loved ones. It's tough to see the old guard go especially considering that boxing is split in this really weird 
a really weird division of they they have these dumb celebrity boxing matches that are like really big deals and a lot of the legitimate boxers who are extremely talented are kind of getting overshadowed and kind of pushed off to the wings as far as combat sports go with the rise of MMA. Yeah, the money that is remaining in the sport is not being directed at the talent and players who need it. And one last thing, and this kind of seems like a good segue, as we move in, you know, we just talked about Spinks' passing. We wanted to start off our Major League Baseball segment talking about the passing of ESPN reporter Pedro Gomez, who really was a... If you were a fan of baseball, it was a household name. I mean, he's pretty much the only like ESPN baseball reporter that I just I've pretty much experienced my whole life. Exactly, it had a profound impact on me, and I, I'm not even a big baseball guy, but I know who Pedro Gomez is. But when baseball, when when news came out, there was one guy who I wanted to hear what he had to say. When a player was signing, when a team was making a trade, when when there were. CBA negotiations and, and risk of a lockout, any of the above. There's one guy who I wanted to hear what he had to say, and that was Pedro Gomez providing incredible insight, providing a window into the game. He was beloved by players. He was beloved by executives and front office, and he was beloved by those in the media. I mean, the people at ESPN had nothing, nothing but phenomenal things to say about him including our two favorites at PTI gave, you know, very melancholy trails from from them. And, you know, this is a tough loss. He passed away suddenly, leaves behind a family, and leaves behind a huge hole and yeah. major shoes to fill oh, yeah. in the industry. So thoughts and prayers going out to Pedro Gomez and the Gomez family and the ESPN family. But let's get back to the diamond and the news surrounding it. The MLB is looking at bringing changes to baseball. They wanted to lower the COR rating, reducing bounce. So trying to actually change the ball itself. Yes. Thinking that maybe this was part of the change that led to the just unnatural surge in home runs over the last couple years. You know, they did change the formula for the ball for the first time in forever. They changed the per- where the balls were made and all that stuff. I they mean, changed, Yeah, so this adjustment, lowering the C-O-R, COR rating, which basically just means the bounciness of it, apparently the way that they're adapting it is they're just going with less tension on the initial first wrapping of the ball, of the wool that's within the ball. We'll see. The Major League Baseball's plan is about a five percent reduction in home runs with this ball modification. Will be it'll be interesting to see. There's always a bunch of fallout from when they make changes. Pitchers don't like it, batters don't like it. It'll be interesting to see if there's much fallout from this little switch up, this little adjustment. Yeah, it's pretty surprising and That wasn't the only changes that we're seeing, though. We also saw some changes, well, to the league adopting some of the rules that we saw this past season. Yeah. Most notably, they're aiming to keep the seven-inning doubleheaders, which was interesting. I thought it provided a definite change to the game 
Seven innings goes by awfully fast and definitely changes the strategy. Uh, your pitching strategy, I mean, having to only account for six innings or seven innings of pitching as opposed to seven to nine yeah. is significant. The other one is they are planning on keeping the rule that allowed teams to start with a runner on second base in extra innings, which I will say provided an incredible deal of excitement, really exciting stuff, but definitely something that you could think a lot of baseball purists might have a problem with adapting beyond the pandemic-impacted season. I gotta say, I'm a big fan of the seven-inning doubleheaders, and I'm a big fan of the runner-on second, and I'll explain why for both. First of all, with the seven-inning doubleheader, you know what it opened the door back up for, which was, we thought was pretty much going to be closed with the sports science and the level of analysis? It's seeing starters go a full game. I know it's going to be quote-unquote a full game because it's only seven innings, but seeing a starter pitch from opening pitch to getting that last strike, getting that last out, I enjoy, I enjoy watching a pitcher take over a game. But and, if that's the case, they're taking away the opportunity for perfect games. You cannot get a perfect game if it's only seven innings. It will not be recognized. Or And, and it also, they don't recognize no hitters that are only seven innings. And if I think those are the two, literally the two, most exciting things that you could come to a game looking for. If you are a fan of pitching, if you are one who loves the pitching duel, who thinks that the pitching position is the most fascinating part of baseball, which there are a lot of people who feel that way. I mean, I know your favorite player of all time, Doc Holliday. You know, pitcher. Uh, if you were coming to the park, wouldn't you would love the chance to see him pitch a perfect game? Yeah. I think you're kind of being robbed of that in this seven-inning system. See, I think that's fine. If they don't want to call it a perfect game, if they don't want to call it a no-hitter, whatever. Say la vie. I'm in it for the performance. Whatever you want to call it is fine. It doesn't have an impact on my personal enjoyment of it. Does it suck it doesn't go in the record book? Yeah, but guess what? I don't think we were going to see many pitchers go nine innings anymore with the sports science, with the risk of having to get a, like a Tommy John surgery from blowing out your arm because you were pitching 112 pitches in certain games. We're seeing the pitch counts go down for pitchers. This allows them to be able to still pitch and throw a full game. Yeah, you're not wrong there. I guess I'm just a little bit more of a purist here, more of an originalist. I really, I liked this idea for COVID-19. I I like this conceptually. But if your issue, I don't get the point. If you're if you're not under a time constraint, if it's just a normal major league baseball season. If you really had that concern that don't schedule the doubleheader in the first place and just play them on different days, this weird, let's make it really only three quarters of a game, but we'll play two of them in the same day, but we'll count it like it's a normal game. Like that just almost, it implies to me that you can cheapen any game by just chopping off a couple of innings because it's convenient. And that to me seems disingenuine for a sport that is so based around tradition, so based around history and, and how you do things. It's like, oh, uh, well, eh, you know what? We want to get these games in, so let's just shorten them up and 
that way we can get them both in today. Like, it, I don't, I don't think it's really that cheapening, but I don't get the point. It made sense during the pandemic, and it doesn't make sense to me now. Yeah, I don't know. I, you, I mean, you can get into all that stuff. I mean, baseball's a game that's decided by balls and strikes. That's decided by one guy behind a plate. Mm. Yeah, we could, we could dissect all of the aspects of baseball for a while, but let's move on. Big household name, one of the biggest global superstars of the of the sport of baseball, just re-upped his contract. Shinji Otane, the outfielder slash pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels, and also the biggest overseas signing in Major League Baseball history, re-signed with the Los Angeles Angels to keep him in his adopted home for at least two more seasons. Otani has been a bit of a controversial player since coming over. I remember being as high on Otani as anybody saying the Phillies should have thrown $200 million at him if they had to to make it work. This was a guy who was coming in with as basically the equivalent of the Cy Young winner for the Nippon League over in Japan, but also led the league in RBIs and home runs that season as well, kind of like a people were given the old Babe Ruth comparison, a pitcher who was also a power hitter, and yet that just has not really translated to the majors. The bat is there. He still hits in the heart of a lineup that features Anthony Rendon and Mike Trout, so you're going to get the numbers. The RBIs will present themselves. The Extra base opportunities will present themselves. However, the thing that made him unique, the thing that made him a unicorn, was the fact that he would go on the mound and then step into the batter's box. And yet on the mound, Otani has not been able to find his stride. Has an ERA that is shockingly high. If I'm not mistaken, his career ERA in the majors is well above 10.0. It seems like every time he steps on the plate, he gets maybe two or three innings, and then there's some sort of a tweaked injury. There's some sort of a, or he gets blown up and basically chased off of the mound. And so, exciting for Otani to return to the Angels, obviously continues to bring the major international star power that he brings to the team. But I would love to see him get that pitching sorted out so we could really see what he can do. And... You know, that would add a lot more to the aura and the almost legend of Otani if he's able to be a dominant. Even if he's not your top-of-the-rotation guy, if he could be a number two pitcher, a, you know, 14-8, and 12-7, you know what I mean? Like, good amount of wins, good amount, handful of losses, but, you know, an ERA between three and four and a half. He would be just so much more fun of a player if you knew he was going out there a few days a week and mowing down players as a pitcher and then stepping up and smacking balls over the fence. Well, yeah, and it would be pretty nice. I bet the Angels would be happy with that two-year, only $8.5 million contract. Yeah, and it's a big step down from the, I believe he was getting something like 23 to 26 a year on that initial international contract. Well, let's hope he saved. The Baseball Writers Association of America announced this past week that it has voted to remove 
J.G. Taylor Spink's name from its award given out to the meritorious contributions of baseball writers across America. Obviously, this is coming off the heels of the discovery that Spink had a little bit of uh, not nice things to say about the African-American players in Major League Baseball and baseball as a whole. And it's part of the Baseball Writers Association and just generally, I think, across you know, businesses, organizations, even person to person, leaving in the past some of the big names that had issues with racial equality. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. You know, the Spink family and name, and, you know, Spink was a ex-player who then, him and his family became prominent because they became really the first like baseball publication. They they became the first ones to write beyond even just posting the box scores to talk about trade speculation, to talk about up-and-coming players and managerial decisions and personnel decisions and really p- paving the way for modern sports media as we know it. The way that sports is its own media cycle, its own news cycle, news cycle and environment, and following. And there's entire, not only is there entire sections of media, but there are entire, you know, universe, university tracks and degree paths and all sorts of things to be working in this sports media and journalism space. And a lot of that originates from the Spink family. But obviously these were different times and the fact that he falls on the wrong side of history with his feelings, with his backwards beliefs and feelings, I think that it makes sense that he is removed and taken off of this. There's no room for that. And, you know, while the contributions to the sport, I mean, I didn't learn that history of that baseball publications and why the award was named that until we were doing the research for this episode. But it shows that you do have the ability to self-correct and you do have the ability to acknowledge, okay, even though we honored this person for their contributions, it's time to move on and honor somebody else for their contributions because we realize that, you know, this person... Was while they were contributing in some aspects, they were also they, they were contributing to progress in some aspects. They were also contributing to the roadblocks that prevented progress in other aspects. And so, a I don't want to say long overdue change, but a very appropriate change. Yes, for the Writers Association and Major League Baseball. Absolutely. Well, we can take it to our last segment of the day and it's the nfl we are fresh off super bowl sunday it's super bowl hangover monday and tom brady's going to be putting on a seventh ring yeah it's pretty unbelievable you know tom brady what 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 is it next year or what next year or the year after tom brady and jason pierre paul could have a ring for every finger i mean it's unbelievable to think that the way this bucks team is going all jokes aside, this was a crazy game to watch and a surprising one. I think both you and I are both surprised by the result that we got here. 
There are a lot of things that you can point to in this game. There are a lot of excuses for either side or things that you could rationalize the result with. But the headline is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense shut down and smothered that Kansas City offense. Yes, the Tampa Bay offense gave the Kansas City defense fits. Yes, the clock management by Andy Reid and the Chiefs was self-destructive and caused tons of problems. Yes, even with the good defensive play, Patrick Mahomes almost pulled a Houdini act and completed some... I mean, some of the incompletions Patrick Mahomes had were, were the most incredible... In the were literally the most incredible plays I've ever seen in my life. And, of course, I would be remiss if I did not bring up that many people, myself included, felt as though there were major discrepancies with the officiating and the consistency in calls by which they were being called on both sides of the football and for both teams. It did not seem that way, and I'm not one to normally get on a soapbox and beat my chest saying it was the officials. And by the way, very good chance that the Buccaneers win this game even without the lopsided officiating. But plays like offensive holding, or, or rather defensive holding, and or face masks, or, or holding offensively with the linemen, or just all sort even the unnecessary roughness or taunting calls yeah. that we were seeing go against the, the Chiefs, but not being called equally against the Buccaneers. I mean, one play, Tom Brady is running down the field after the Honey Badger to yell things in his face and say profanities and things that, you know, even both of them said they weren't comfortable repeating. Yeah. And yet... Who got penalized who on the play? Who penalized on the play? The Honey Badger. Absolutely. And so, again, do not want to sit here and say, oh, if it weren't for the officiating, Kansas City will win. No, but it looked like it. I mean, we've it, seen. It, defensive holding calls at the end of that first half were bogus, and there were multiple ones on that drive. Well, and they that could have been offensive pass interference exactly. just as easily. It was hand fighting. Yeah, or, or you know, the. Was it a defensive lineman or, or was it – all I remember is what the, the Buccaneers player had his hands all around the neck of the Chiefs player and the Chiefs player shoves him off. Chiefs player gets unnecessary roughness for, you know, shoving the player, punching or whatever. You know, yeah. it's like there were just a lot of plays where it seemed like – Patrick Mahomes got hit in the head with like an open oh, – yeah. open Brutal. Open fist slap. Nothing. Wally was already in the grasp of another player too. Yeah. So he was grasped – pretty much guaranteed sack by the other player, just gets pummeled directly in the head. And so I just feel as though it took away from the experience of the game. It did. It felt a little bit cheapened, and it felt like this officiating crew was on their first game of the preseason. Did not feel like it was the Super Bowl matchup. And it is a little bit annoying to talk about because it puts a black mark on the first Super Bowl that had a female official. Yeah, obviously, in no way implying that it w- her performance or her presence dampered the overall performance of the officiating crew. But, I, I don't yeah. think so, especially because, you know, she was the, the line judge, yeah. and I think she made a fantastic call on that stoppage of the— On oh, the, the fourth and goal? On the fourth and goal. Yeah, and so definitely a big moment for her and women in the Super Bowl and in the NFL, but— it's a shame that the officiating becomes a conversation piece beyond that. Mm-hmm. That should have been the only conversation piece about a- the officials. Should have been, hey, how great it is. Congratulations to her and the NFL for this historic moment. But instead, we're sitting here saying, wow, 
Look at the pen. I mean, they were at halftime. There was something like 13 penalties called, and 11 of them were on Kansas City. The all-time record for penalties in a game is 21, in a Super Bowl, I believe, is 21. So the Chiefs were already well past the 50% mark by themselves for penalties in a Super Bowl of all time, and yet, yeah, it, it just it just felt like. It felt it felt like I had too big of an impact on the game, and you don't like to see that. But moving on, we did see a number of things that we did enjoy from the game. It was a successful Super Bowl for all intensive purposes, given COVID, given everything going on. They were able to still fill up the stadium relative, what, 20, or I think it was actually close to 40% capacity. They were able to bring in... A th- bunch of cardboard cutouts. Cardboard cutouts, but I was going to say also thousands of frontline healthcare workers put a big tribute to all of their contributions this season, and, and I say this season, but really this year, on all levels of the fight, the people in, you know, nurses, doctors, the people in in the front lines of this virus, really getting some of the respect that they deserve. And so it was a good presentation by the league. The halftime show was pretty weak. The weekend struggled. Seemed like his audio was off. Seemed like the production almost seemed a little out of place given COVID, given the lack of crowds, given everything going on, having 300, 400 people doing a, you know, choreographed dance. Just, I don't want to say it seems in poor taste, because, like, I don't think anybody was offended by it. And they were all wearing masks. Yeah, well. They looked like underwear. Something like that, yeah. And on the field, it was just a great performance by Tom Brady, as much as I hate to give him credit. And Locks, Rob Gronkowski, too. Rob Gronkowski impressed majorly in this game. Leah locks down an MVP award for Brady, a, a, another Super Bowl MVP. Rob Gronkowski felt like matched his season production in this one game. I mean, when the lights are brightest, that's when Gronk comes to life. And really, this is what he came out of retirement for. Rob Gronkowski came out of retirement for one thing, and that's the Super Bowl. He didn't come out of retirement for regular season. He didn't come out of retirement for the paycheck. He didn't come out of retirement for the practices and the two-a-days and minicamp and the OTAs and the injury report and the walkthroughs and the film sessions. No. Rob Gronkowski came out of retirement for one thing, and that was the Super Bowl. And you could tell he looked he looked eight years younger and 15 surgeries back out there. I mean, the speed he was moving with, the intensity, with the way he was welcoming contact with the defender as opposed to shying away from it. Really, mm-hmm. it looked like a Gronkowski we haven't seen since 2013, 2014, no. that range. Yeah, his, his blocking was absolutely prime. It was. It was. Yeah, it seemed almost all of their big runs were running right behind number eighty-seven. Yeah, sealing off the end, go peeling off, closing off that end with the linebacker coming around. I mean, he was getting on to two, sometimes even three blocks in a play, opening up the lane, and then also the amount of big plays he made. You know, even kind of feigning or, or faking blocking in, then peeling off out for for a reception. Rob Gronkowski came out of retirement. For this one game, and he balled out. He made it all worth it. What definitely wasn't worth it was <laughs> late in the fourth quarter, there was a little bit of an interruption on the field. A streaker, as it was called, despite the guy 
wearing what looked like a bra and gym shorts. Yeah, way less exciting when it is a chunky 31-year-old dude running across the field. You know, if you're going to... Come on, porn sites. If you're going to... Yeah, try for some viral marketing. If you want to go Super for Bowl. some viral marketing during the Super Bowl, at least send somebody who would be fitting for a porn site yeah, across think. the field. But it provided a glimpse of change of pace, especially at a point when the game seemed like a foregone conclusion. But on the same token, I think this is really poor form, especially yeah. during a pandemic. Yeah, when, you look like an asshole. When you're dealing with public health and all of the crises going on with that yeah you kind of uh, like like you said it you kind of just look like an ass but elsewhere we have news that was beyond the super bowl yeah another quarterback on the move yeah josh rosen really what ha- who has the first domino to fall out of that very impressive quarterback class of a few years ago you know we saw baker mayfield we saw lamar jackson darnold Rosen, Josh Allen. Well, Rosen really has been the only one who hasn't found any footing. Yeah, in I mean, the he got nothing started in Arizona. Then he gets kicked. And he gets sent down to Miami, doesn't get the job down there. Gets kicked. And so he's stumbling his way to San Francisco yeah, on a one year deal. I'm curious if he makes it out of training camp. Uh, you know, you, you say that, but considering San Francisco, they're happy to have the depth. In San Francisco. Yeah, but what I was almost getting at, they already have the depth. I mean, you think of it, they still have Jimmy Garoppolo, and despite the rumors, there's still no concrete signs of him going anywhere. Nick Mullins, who has had to fill in numerous times over the past couple seasons, has proven to be a relatively serviceable backup. Yeah. Obviously, not a, not, ton a of guy you, not a guy you want to start all 16 games, but he put together respectable performances when called upon, and then you look further down the line, and C.J. Beathard, who I, you know, I can't even name the third-string quarterbacks on most teams. But we know C.J. Came in and balled out a couple times this year. And so that's just why I joke, not even trying to kick Josh Rosen while he's down. But if you were to ask me, real talk, being like, Michael, you just got promoted to GM of an expansion NFL franchise. Do you want Nick Mullins, C.J. Beathard, or Josh Rosen? There's a good chance that Rosen is the last one that I pick on that list. And so, I mean, obviously a guy who had all the talent coming out. I mean, there were people saying he might he should have been the top pick in that draft. I mean, I remember, other than Lamar Jackson, there were people advocating for any of the other four to be the number one overall pick, whether it was Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, Josh Allen or Baker Mayfield, there were people clamoring that any one of those four should have been the pick and saying whoever took the first, you know, constantly, oh, well, they're going to be regretting it because this one's the real diamond here. And, you know, it's funny because so far, in my mind, the one who's been most impressive has been Lamar Jackson. Lamar. Josh Allen really took a big step and, and definitely it's becoming a conversation for years forward. But at least looking now, the trophies speak for themselves. Yeah. One of them has an MVP. And yeah, exactly. And that's pretty much decided. We also see Gary Kubiak retired just a week ago. And already Minnesota has named a replacement. And they didn't have to go very far. Because Clint Kubiak 
is going to be taking over his father's role as the offensive coordinator. Is this nepotism? I'm going to say no. I was kind of thinking in my head like a, of a joke where like Gary Kubiak has some big falling out with the team president, so they fire him, and then like a week later he shows up with a fake mustache like, Hi, I'm Clint Kubiak. I'm Gary's kid. Yeah. But, I mean, the Kubi- Gary Kubiak, I-, I don't know anything about his son. They just didn't want to hire somebody to repaint his uh, his door. Yeah, they, they already had the name tag made up. But really, Gary Kubiak has had a, a long, illustrious career in the NFL. I feel like he's one of those guys that whose name I've been hearing in the coaching world since I started to keep track of coaches in the NFL. Yeah. I mean, Gary Kubiak is as much of a household name as an assistant coach and unsuccessful head coach can be. It's going to be sad to see him go. I think he really shores up. He's a, he's a point of stability for a lot of franchises, almost like a Romeo Cornell. You know, Romeo Cornell's not an NFL head coach. But guess what? If I'm building an NFL sideline, I want Romeo Cornell there as my coordinator right off the bat. Oh, and then if you ever need him as a head coach, you know he could fill in, you know. Like, Gary Kubiak's one of those. And so if his son picked anything up, you know, apples, trees, you know how it goes. That's the case. Then this could be a great sign, great signing, or great, great pickup for Minnesota, and this could be a great start to his career. Hopefully, maybe getting out of the the shadow of his debt pops. But you know, if yeah. he's if he's even able to have half the success, I'd say that's a, a, a solid a career. NFL career. So it'll be something to keep an eye on in Minnesota. We did have some sad news though. Mm-hmm. Chris Wessling, or Wes, as he's known by many. Yes, especially fans of the Around the NFL podcast. Passed away this week from cancer. Very unfortunate. Big in NFL media. I mean, big in the podcast scene. Mm-hmm. I know him, I know him personally probably best from his time working with uh, Rich Eisen. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the big one. I feel like, you know, Rich Eisen, household name when it comes to NFL. And uh, Wesling kind of rode his coattails, but kind of almost became like a little, a little bit of a sidekick type thing, mm-hmm. you know? Really, they played off of one another, and it's going to be a shame. He's one of those guys who I always looked hearing what he had to say. You know, we were just talking about Gomez in Major League Baseball. I mean, obviously, not the stature, no offense to Wesling, but, you know, doesn't have the same longevity and, and stature that Gomez had yeah, and, I mean, and ESPN Gomez... being the platform it is, but... You know, being the world that it is, this is one of the guys where I always wanted to hear what he had to say. Always wanted to hear his thoughts on the upcoming season or the big personnel move or the quarterback controversy or you name it. Always had something witty, intelligent, insightful. And, you know, again, the way he and Rich Eisen played off one another and and their chemistry is something that to be missed. Yes, very sorely. The award season was announced for this past NFL season, and really there's no surprises. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of well-earned awards for a lot of fantastic players who, who really, I mean, everybody on this list is a treat. You start off at the top, Aaron Rodgers winning the MVP. And this to me is maybe the one that's the biggest debate out of all of them, and it's not really. Not really. You know, he gets his at, third. You look at what he did. It was well-deserved, but it almost feels like this is one where he won it for lack of a better option. 
again, not that he's a bad option. I love Aaron Rodgers. Big Aaron Rodgers fan. And what they were able to do there, really impressive. But maybe it's just that we got spoiled, you know, over the last decade having the record-breaking seasons between Mahomes and Brady and Peyton Manning and just the high-power offenses. And, you know, so... Or, or even in the past when we've seen, like, when, when Adrian Peterson won the MVP or when, you know, it's, I feel like we've been treated to spectacular seasons of late to win the MVP award. Heck, even Lamar Jackson last year, really just doing something we'd literally never seen before. Mm-hmm. And this year, I feel like it feels underwhelming because it was just something we'd all seen before. And it wasn't... Like, it wasn't even the best we've seen Aaron Rodgers ever do it. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't feel like an MVP season. It no. was. It yeah. was deserved. It, he was the most valuable player, but the value of the most valuable player felt diminished this season. Yeah, it just... And again, I think it was just because it lacked spectacularity. It lacked that thing that took it from being, oh, wow, that's impressive, to being, holy shit. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. It, it wasn't... It, there was no next level Exactly. We found this season. Derrick Henry wins the Offensive Player of the Year. I mean, literally carrying that Tennessee Titans team on his back, and you could probably put in a whole other franchise. He could keep carrying it. Well, yeah. I mean, he had more rushing yards than many teams did this season. When you get to the 2,000-yard mark, that is an incredible feat, and very few people have ever done it. The fact that the Titans have now done it twice in the last few years is remarkable. I mean, they have the two most recent 2,000-yard rushers with him and Chris Johnson. And so, as a result, I felt like you almost had to give him this Offensive Player of the Year. Again, especially considering we were lacking the spectacular performance at the MVP level. It seemed like Derrick Henry, you know, if, if Aaron Rodgers missed a game or two, we might have even been turning toward Derrick Henry for that MVP award itself. And so electrifying season for Derrick Henry, and he will look to continue to build off of not just now one, but two, two campaigns that, you know, if he, if he puts together another two or three, we're very quickly talking about Derrick Henry as a future hall of famer. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Let's move to the defensive side of the ball where we already are at that point with this player, Aaron Donald of the, Los Angeles Rams just truly had an unbelievable season. He edges out T.J. Watt of Pittsburgh for the Defensive Player of the Year award. I believe this is his, what, third or fourth Defensive Player of the Year award. Really astronomical. I mean, he's pretty much first-team All-Pro and Defensive Player of the Year almost every year. Aaron Donald is a surefire Hall of Famer. No questions asked. He could retire tomorrow and be first ballot. And I think that that is so well-deserved that it's not even funny. I mean, you could you could almost pencil him in. You could almost write that award in in permanent marker because yeah. until he hangs it up, I don't know if I see anybody surpassing him. And that includes incredible talents like Jalen Ramsey, like Khalil Mack, even, heck, our boy Fletcher Cox. Mm. You know, I, I was... Some, I was having a conversation the other day. Somebody asked me if Fletcher Cox is a Hall of Famer. I said, yes, but potentially rather. But 
he's going to have the major black mark of it's going to look like he was never the best player in the league at his position because he was always playing at a time when Aaron Donald was playing. Yeah, and I mean it's a, I mean it's a treat that we get this level of defensive line play out of multiple players in the NFL. Offensive rookie of the year goes to your giraffe pick in the dynasty league that we're both in. Justin Herbert of the Chargers caps off a impressive rookie year coming in after week five and really lighting it up for a kind of middling Chargers team. Yeah, I mean, he actually, I thought he came in even earlier than that. It was a week four. I, it was week two, if I'm not mistaken. I think Tyrod Taylor had one start this season and then was had the punctured lung where, was he, that was, early? where he was called out prior to the week two matchup. Yes. So Justin Herbert gets 15, I believe 15 games under his belt as a rookie, sets all sorts of rookie passing records, which is, again, remarkable considering the limited fact that it wasn't a full season and that he didn't have a full offseason preparing with the first team, kind of getting that starter mindset where a guy like Joe Burrow had the benefit of coming into the season knowing it was his show. It was the Joe Burrow show. So Justin Herbert has to be really happy with himself. The Chargers have to be really happy with their pick on their franchise quarterback. But I'm curious to see how the new coach handles this offense and how how they decide to kind of steer this ship from here. On the defensive side of the ball, defensive rookie of the year went to Chase Young. Had a devastating season for the Washington football team. And really... I think there was no question. About I mean, this I think one. by like week four, he ran away with it. Yeah, there was no, especially the last five or six weeks of the season. I mean, he became a disruptor right up there with the likes of the top pass rushers in the league. I mean, your JJ Watts, even your Aaron Donald, as far as defensive line disruptors go, yeah. Chase Young is a freak of nature, and I imagine it's going to be wreaking havoc on our division and the NFL for many years to come and keeping things on that Washington football team and in Washington we saw the comeback player of the year again this one was pretty much written in stone from the second he took his first snap this season he was a shoe in for this award but then beyond that he didn't just take one snap and come in for relief it ended up being his show at the end of the season and he was able to fight and get his team into the playoffs Alex Smith winning the NFL Comeback Player of the Year award, what, three years removed from his gruesome leg injury, and then... Multiple complications. Yeah, and then following infections. I mean, almost had... He had clots, he had infections, he almost had to get it amputated. They almost killed him. It was life-threatening. The fact that he was even able to walk again was a miracle of modern science, the fact that he's playing football again is even crazier. So obviously, big kudos, big props, all the respect in the world. Absolutely, no matter deserved. what jersey he's putting on to Alex Smith, and we're happy he was able to come back. And he has his mobility. He has the game he loves and his health. Yes. And the last award goes to the man with the headset. The coach of the year goes to Kyle Stefanski. And obviously, if you get the Browns into the playoffs, 
this award was going to be yours. And that's what Kyle Stefanski did. He took this struggling Cleveland team and made them an absolute force in a brutal division and had a legitimate playoff campaign. Yeah. I mean, a big step forward for that entire franchise, but Stefanski did a great job and deservingly so takes home this NFL Coach of the Year award. But there's one more thing we want to talk about before we wrap things up for the week, and that is in addition to the awards coming out for the 2020 NFL season, we also had our eight enshrinees for the Pro Football Hall of Fame announced this past week. And there are a lot of names that are big household names, obviously. They're Hall of Famers. Some that we're more excited about than others, but a lot of guys that really, I think, laid some foundation of football during our youth and really our formative years of getting into the game. And I think no more, nobody was more significant in this than the headline, the the showstopper of this Hall of Fame class, Peyton Manning. Oh, that's weird. I I didn't think I was going there. No, I thought you were going to go with Calvin Johnson, Megatron. Well, I, I was going to get to that in a second. I mean, I was you have to give Peyton Manning the, the, the lead in. Now I guess I can go on and say Calvin Johnson is my favorite player all time, other than maybe Donovan McNabb. And so he is obviously, in my mind, the most, I don't want to say the most impressive on this list, but the most influential to me. And I'm a big Detroit fan, and I think he is the most dominant at his position that I have ever seen. But I was going to give Peyton Manning the prime spot no, because Peyton, Peyton Manning gets the prime spot because he's Peyton Manning. Yeah, he's and, Peyton Manning. It's Peyton's uh, place. Other names on this list include Charles Woodson, Drew Pearson, Alan Fanica, Bill Nunn, John Lynch, and long overdue Tom Flores. Shocking he wasn't in the Hall of Fame already. Two Super Bowl wins as a head coach and really... Uh, just a, a hell of an impressive career with those Dolphins teams in the 80s. Yeah, spanning decades. Yeah, I mean, he, he was he was with Raiders, uh, the Chiefs, the Bills, and yeah, it's just, it was shocking to me. And, and by the way, I was mistaken. It was not the Dolphins. It was the Raiders. It was but, the Raiders. But the fact that, you know, Multiple Super Bowl winner. I mean, he was one of only four coaches to have multiple Super Bowls and have not been in the Hall of Fame, which I was shocked that there were even four coaches with multiple Super Bowls not in the Hall of Fame. But he was one of them and no longer has to deal with that. The 83-year-old, after a lifetime in football, now gets to be immortalized in Canton along with this other really impressive class. I mean, you know, Alan Fanica... How rare it is that we see offensive linemen getting into the Hall of Fame. But Fanica, boy, he was a beast. You know, it, it's it's just, it'll be a good class. But, a, yeah, you know, great, Peyton great Manning class. is going to be the one that everybody loses their minds over. Personally, I'm most excited about Calvin Johnson, though. I mean, the guy stepped away from the game at age, what, 31. I mean, the most incredible physical specimen I've ever seen. People talk about DeAndre Hopkins. People talk about Larry Fitzgerald. They don't even think. I don't even think they They're hold really a candle. Good. They're really they don't good. Think they hold a candle, or like like it, even Julio Jones. I mean, Cal, the things Calvin his vertical, his speed. I think he is the his only, ability to high point a ball. I, I think, don't think anybody's ever been as good. Yeah, it just it was uncoverable, and 
I could have an entire podcast where I talk nothing about how good I thought Calvin Johnson is. Yeah. But, unfortunately, I think it's time that we do that thing that we always hate doing. That's where we take our ball and go home. It's time to hit the showers. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Balls Over the Top podcast. As always, you can find us on our socials at at B-O-T-T podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And this podcast is available everywhere podcasts are available. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. If you want to find us on a podcasting site, we're there. Yeah, and if you could, if it's available, depending on your platform, smash that like or subscribe or even just throw the link up. Share it with some friends. We really appreciate it, guys. We do. Thanks. Thanks.